Last week we finished up the book of James, uh, written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Today we are coming back to 1 John. If you remember way back at the end of 2020, 1 John was the first book that I preached through. Um, and we are circling back around to that, and we'll continue through 2 John, 3 John, and then Jude. We are going back to 1 John because I believe it is a cornerstone of the faith. From new believers, you look at this and you can tell whether you have been born again. John gives us several tests and he assures us of our salvation. Of course, as you mature, uh, you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You constantly want more assurance. Tomorrow, I want to be more sure of my salvation than I am today. First John is good for that. He gives us assurance. Now, John was called by Jesus as a young man while he was mending his fishing nets with his brother and his dad. He was probably 15 or 16 years old, somewhere in there. And he had been walking with Jesus for his whole life. From that point on, John was a brother to James, the apostle, and Jesus had two disciples named James. There was one of Zebedee, and that is this James, the brother of John. Both of these Jameses are distinct from James, the brother of Jesus. Okay, so there's three big James that you can get confused We're talking about James of Zebedee, brother of John. Uh, These two brothers, James and John, were called by Jesus the sons of thunder. And this gives us a little insight into their personalities. Uh, They were people of great zeal, passion, and ambition. And early on in their walk with Christ, they didn't really know how to control this ambition. Uh, But we actually see that John matures quite well. Um, He began to learn humility through his time with Jesus. And his gospel is the only gospel account that records Jesus washing the disciples' feet. A simple act of servitude, of humbling himself. And I have no doubt that this deeply humbling act would have been constantly present in John's mind. Now John was around 90 years old as he writes this first epistle. Back when the average lifespan was around 45 years, he is an old, old man, and he has amassed a great deal of experience. John is, when he's writing this letter, the last of the disciples. The rest have already been martyred for the cause of Christ, the last man standing. 1 John was written partially as a reaction to the Gnostic heresy that had found its way into this early church. There were two main schools of thought within Gnosticism. The first is that Jesus was merely a spirit and did not actually come as a man to the earth. This sort of led them to believe that anything that was material or of the flesh was sinful inherently. The second school of thought uh, within Gnosticism said that the man Jesus 
So Jesus, as a man, only became the Christ at his baptism, where what is called the Christ spirit descended on him. And then at his crucifixion, the Christ spirit left him, and he was again a man. Again, this is heresy. Uh, We do not hold to this in the church. But this was some thinking that was creeping into the early church. And we still see some of these same thoughts in the New Age movement today. Um, And these beliefs took the church away from the truth. John is writing with these beliefs in mind. And we can tell by reading this letter that the Holy Spirit is purposing in John's heart to address some very specific parts of Gnosticism. And we will even see some of this in just the first few verses. Some big themes to look for as we make our way through 1 John. One is truth. Truth is used in every chapter of this epistle. You'll see the word truth. And only Jesus is recorded as speaking more of truth than John. John placed a big emphasis on truth. John uses contrasts. He uses these to show the divide between life with Christ and life without Christ. Some examples that he he goes into is light and dark, good and evil, truth and lies, and love and hate. And these contrasts illustrate how black and white things actually are. You are either with Christ or you are against him. Another big theme and really the central theme that we'll be looking at as we go through is assurance to the believer of salvation. In other words, how can we know that we have eternal life? Now, this is the big one. John spells out four, five reasons for writing his epistle. The first is found in chapter 1, verse 3, that you may have fellowship with us and with God. The first two chapters will deal with fellowship. 1 John 1.4, he gives us another reason for his writing this. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. We know that happiness and joy are different things, and we'll go into that a little more. The third reason for John writing this, 1 John 2.1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Our lifestyle should change when we're saved. We shouldn't be comfortable living in sin. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And we'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 2 as well. 1 John 2.26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. John wants the church to be aware of the false doctrine that is coming in and that was already in the church and spreading. Um, As we mentioned, Gnosticism was one of these. The last reason for John writing this epistle is found in 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue 
to believe in the name of the Son of God. Some Christians and even some entire denominations will teach that you can never know if you are actually saved. But John teaches that we can know, and he tells us how. Now, the Holy Spirit uses the Apostle John to give us his gospel, his three epistles, and revelation. John being the human pen of each of these writings. In John's gospel, he says that he wrote his gospel to unbelievers so that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they may have life in his name. So the gospel is an outreach program. He's trying to reach unbelievers. In the gospel, he puts his emphasis on justification. The gospel records past history. In his epistles, he writes to current believers. So he goes from writing to unbelievers to writing to believers. And he writes to them that they may know that they have eternal life. This is for the assurance of salvation. He puts his emphasis on, in his epistles on sanctification. It is the present experience of a Christian with Christ. And in the book of Revelation, he puts his emphasis on glorification. It's a future hope that we have in Christ. So these three works from John give us a bird's eye view of the ministry of Jesus. He died for us, presented in the gospel. He lives in us, presented in the epistles. And he's coming back for us, presented in Revelation. And with that little overview, let's get going in 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. There's a a lot of looking and seeing, gazing and touching, hearing. There's a lot of that in these first four verses. Um, This tells us something. This tells us that John is not pulling these things out of thin air. He is relating back to his personal experience with Christ. That which was from the beginning. John refers to the eternality of Jesus to open his epistle. That which was from the beginning. He also did this in referring to the eternality of Jesus to open his gospel. If you look back in the first chapter of John... He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, this idea of the eternality of Jesus is not a new concept to the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And here we have a prophecy of Jesus 
in Micah. And this actually tells of his everlasting nature. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And there we have it. it this concept starts in the Old Testament and continues through the New. John says, which we have heard, seen, gazed upon, and handled. Which we have seen with our eyes. This word seen means to become acquainted with by experience. It is experiential. He has seen Jesus, and through seeing it, he knows Jesus better. Now, he is writing based on firsthand experience. And John was part of Jesus's inner circle. That's called the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Remember, James and John are the two brothers. Um, Along with Peter, they were witness to the Mount of Transfiguration events. They were taken up onto a mountain and Jesus showed him, him in his glorified state. Miraculous, no doubt. And I believe that that experience is still singed in John's mind. I don't think that I would be forgetting that experience. And I think that it would definitely inform what I write and how I live. The things that he witnessed are still playing back in his mind. Verse 2, the life was manifested. Now, God has revealed himself to humanity in different ways throughout all of history. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem the creation. The life was manifested in Jesus Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 2, and we have seen and bear witness This word witness literally means to give a testimony. It's more than just being a witness to an event as in a spectator. It's more than that. Yes, that is a prerequisite, but this is saying, I've seen it and I testify about it. You can bet your sweet bippy that I was there. And I saw these things, and I testify to that fact. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, chapters 1 and 2 place an emphasis on fellowship. Later on in chapters 3 through 5, we'll see the emphasis placed on sonship. And these are working together, but distinct from each other. Once you are a born-again believer of Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. You are sealed as a son. But even born-again Christians can fall out of fellowship with God. So in the first two chapters, we'll see fellowship um, 
talked about quite a bit. You may have heard the Greek word for fellowship before. It's koinonia. And it's difficult to construct a dictionary definition of koinonia in English because it has such a wide range of usages in the Greek. Um, But think of cahoots. If I say I'm in cahoots with someone, you know what that means. But it's hard to define what a cahoot is, right? So the, the readers of this letter know exactly what John's talking about. It's just a little bit hard to, to translate it. And I say all of that to just say that fellowship is actually a very good translation of this word koinonia. It's a sharing. It's a having something in common or to have joint participation. So fellowship is a good way to say this. We have fellowship with God. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship, koinonia, with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, as a Christian with a personal relationship to Jesus Christ, we should be joyful. And that should be part of who we are. John makes sure that the readers of his epistle know that they are appointed to joy. And how wonderful is it to be appointed to joy? We know that joy is different than happiness. Happiness comes and goes. Um, It is really dependent on your circumstances, where joy is internal. Imagine that you just got news that your car had been totaled out in our parking lot. You would not be very happy. Imagine, and this is very hypothetical, imagine that I pulled out my checkbook, wrote you a check for a brand new car of your choice. You'd be very happy. So you go from being down in the dumps, very sad, to being very happy. Happiness is based on circumstances. But the joy that we have in Christ is internal. It's not based on our circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. We should have joy. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. We said that assurance is a big theme in 1 John. He is assuring believers of their salvation um, and warning those who do not live up to these tests. And you need to correct some things before you move on. But that assurance of salvation, no doubt, produces joy. No doubt. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Um, Verses 1 through 4 are talking about his eyewitness experiences with the man Christ, with the physical Christ, Um, not some ethereal spiritual being who came on the earth. There was actually a legend in Gnostic circles um, about Jesus walking in the sand and leaving no footprints. That's a legend. That's not actually 
how it was, but that's the, the thought that was circulating in these Gnostic circles. And verses one through four, um, I really see as a reaction to Gnosticism. Um, a lot of what the Gnostics taught centered around knowledge. You've probably heard the root gnosis before. It, it really means knowledge. And they taught that salvation could be achieved through knowledge, through gnosis. Now, I'm thankful, for one, that this is not the case, um, or else I would have no chance. But salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not dependent on what you know. It's dependent on who you place your faith in. Gnosticism taught that the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. This teaching created two extreme groups within Gnosticism. The first was the ascetics. Asceticism is a strict self-discipline, and it denies any type of indulgence to the flesh um, to an extreme. Since the flesh was corrupt in their minds, uh, they tried to bridle it with their own power by denying any kind of indulgence. The second camp was extreme moral laxity. So instead of going way to the asceticism, they went way over to the other side to being morally lax. And their thought was this. We can't corrupt our bodies more than they already are. So we might as well live fast and loose, doing whatever we want. And this philosophy allowed immorality to abound. Now, because of the principle that flesh was evil and the spirit was good, they taught that Jesus did not possess a body and could not have because Jesus was good. If the flesh is evil, Jesus, who is good, could not possess a body. If this was the case, then he could not provide aid to the seed of Abraham. Inasmuch, then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. This is coming from Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews tells us the importance of Jesus coming in the likeness of man, in literal flesh. Let's read Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. For he indeed for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So Jesus was tempted in every way that we are tempted. And that is the reason that he can come to our aid when we are tempted. This idea that Jesus came in the flesh as a man is central to our Christian theology, our very beliefs. 
And John is writing as a reaction to this. He is confirming the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. John heard, he saw, he gazed upon and handled Jesus on earth. In fact, John 20, 27 reads, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus asked doubting Thomas to reach out and touch him. Now, this is after his resurrection. He still had a physical body. Thomas was able to put his hands in the wounds in Jesus' side. The flesh. Verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. This is an eyewitness account that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John sets up our first contrast in this verse. It's a contrast between light and dark. What is darkness? Darkness is nothing of itself, but it's simply the absence of light. Where God, the light is, there cannot be darkness. In a pitch black room, if you light a small match, that small match is able to light up the whole room. Because where light is, darkness cannot be, since the definition of darkness is the absence of light. Light reveals things that are hidden. If a burglar is trying to sneak into your home, he's using the darkness for cover. He's sneaking around the outside, but all of a sudden, your light that has a motion detector on it pops on. All of a sudden, he's not hidden anymore. The light has revealed something. It's revealed that burglar. God can illuminate our lives, shining his light into every crevice of our hearts. Psalm 139, 23, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. God will search you out if you allow him to. The word of God is sharp and powerful. It can divide between flesh and blood, soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And it makes things known that were not before. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, John introduces this idea of fellowship. Um, fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. If we say that we have fellowship with him 
but our lives don't match up with that confession, we walk in darkness and there's no light in us. We lie and do not practice the truth. When I moved out of my family's house after I graduated from high school, I was not in fellowship with them as much as I was before when I lived under their roof. They were back in Allen while I was in Stephenville going to Tarleton. But that didn't change the fact that my dad was my dad. You see, a Christian is a son of God. We are born again. And that sonship does not change when our fellowship changes. We can fall out of fellowship with God. And as tragic as that is, it does happen. When I moved out of my house, I stopped acting so much like my parents. You know, when you hang around someone, you tend to do things that they do. You say things the way that they say them. But when you stop hanging out with that person, you stop exhibiting their characteristics. In the same way, if we walk in the light, we will begin to exude the light. Um, A great example of this is Moses. Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God, and he stayed there a while. And when he came down, his face shone. His face was literally glowing. He was around the light so long that the light shone through him. If we hang out with God, people can see that in our lives. The way we treat someone who cheated on us out of a business deal or otherwise wronged us, that will change. And this is just one example, but the point is that the light of the Father will be evident in how you conduct yourself if you walk in the light. Verse 7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I want to read this in Kenneth Wiest's translation for you. Uh, he was a Greek scholar from Moody Institute. He says, The blood of Jesus, his son, keeps continually cleansing us from every sin. Now, as we move through 1 John, I would highly, highly encourage you, if you don't have access to the Wiest Bible, uh, Kenneth Wiest's translation of the Bible, try to pick that up. Um, it's just the New Testament, but what he does is he he uses as many words as necessary to come to the most accurate translation, which is very helpful in 1 John especially, where the tenses of the Greek words are very important to the text meaning. So if you don't have a copy of that, I'd encourage you to get one. But he says, the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps continually cleansing us from every sin. It's a present progressive. It's continually cleansing us. It cleanses us now, and it continues to cleanse us. We know that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. You know, Satan looks at us and points at us and says, ha, see how he messed up? Do you see that, God? He really did it today. God's like, yeah, yeah, I see that. 
Jesus is sitting there making intercession for us. He's our lawyer, our advocate. Yes, Father, he, he did mess up. I can't deny that, but he's covered. I've already settled that debt. He is our advocate. If we walk in the light, we will begin to exude the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin. This is talking about um, sin for the believer. Anybody sins. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not a believer. The difference is sin is not the thrust of our life as a believer. We cannot comfortably live in sin if we are of the light. If we say that we have no sin, that is no propensity for sin. If we say that we are sinless, the truth is not in us. Now, as a church leader, I don't live in any sin that would disqualify me from ministry. But that doesn't mean that you can't catch me in a bad moment. I do mess up. And I certainly say things and do things that I wish I didn't. And we will always wrestle with sin. And I believe it was Spurgeon that said, dead men don't wrestle. If you can sit in sin comfortably, there is a heart check that needs to be initiated. You need to sit before the throne of God and you need to check that. Because as believers, we cannot be comfortable in sin. Dead men don't wrestle. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to forgive those who repent. I want to read real quick Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is Jesus telling a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It says, starting in verse 9, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee who exalted himself, saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other wackos, he went away 
with unresolved sin. But the tax collector confessed that he was a sinner and he went away justified. That is just as if the sin never happened. He was cleansed. This word cleanse in our text, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness is the Greek word katharizo. It's like our word catheterize. And we all probably have some image of that in our minds, but it's something that has to do with draining a toxin. If your body can't drain a toxin, you can catheterize it. The catheter will help you drain what you can't on your own. We can't cleanse ourselves from the toxin that is sin. It takes the blood of Christ to continually cleanse us, to drain the sin from us, to cleanse us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does something for us that we could never do on our own. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It takes a breaking down before Christ can build you up. He who humbles himself will be exalted. You must come to the end of yourself before you can let Christ take your life. Now, this is a quote by A.W. Tozer. And this is what he says about repentance. What shall we do is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes that he is an usurper and sits on a stolen throne. However painful, it is precisely this acute moral consternation that produces true repentance and makes a robust Christian after the penitent has been dethroned and has found forgiveness and peace through the gospel. So he uses a lot of big words, but basically what he's saying is you have to come to the end of yourself before Christ can impact your life. If you are all you need, there's no reason to have Christ. If we can satisfy the debt that we owe without him, then his death was for nothing. We know that Jesus did not want to partake in that suffering. He prayed and asked God to take this cup of suffering from me. God did not take the cup from him. It was the only way. There's no knowledge, nothing else that we can do to measure up, to pay our debt. Christ was the only way. And the realization that I could never measure up to God's standard of righteousness set the stage for the gospel to take hold in my heart. If I can think that I can measure up based on my own volition, I'm deceiving myself. The truth is not in me. And there is, of effect, no thirst for the gospel in my life. Because you wouldn't need it. 
when the penitent is dethroned, when we take ourselves off of the throne of our lives, place Jesus there, that's when wonderful things happen. That is when it starts. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, we're going to close there at the end of chapter 1 this week. We'll pick up in chapter 2 next week, um, and that is going to be an awesome study. If you would, please pray with me as we close.